Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, the latest drama from the trial of athlete Oscar Pistorius in South Africa. 20 years after the horrors of Rwanda, we hear about the genocide returning to the heart of Africa today. And in Britain, we look at why the Liberal Democrats are taking on the Eurosceptics. Next month sees the 20th anniversary of the start of a 100-day massacre in Rwanda that left up to a million people dead, one-fifth of the total population and 70% of the minority Tutsi tribe. The genocide in Rwanda became a byword not only for intercommunal hatred, but for the impotence of the international community, who failed to take effective action to stop the killing. Today, genocide could be returning to the heart of Africa, where the Central African Republic is witnessing the kind of nightmare ethnic cleansing we saw in Rwanda in the early 1990s. Thousands are said to have died in fighting between Christians and Muslims, and the United Nations reports that 650,000 people have been internally displaced, while nearly 300,000 have fled to neighbouring Chad and Cameroon. Dominic McSorley was Concern's first country director in Rwanda in the 1990s. He's now that organisation's chief executive, and he joins me on the line from London now. Dominic, when you look at what's happening in the Central African Republic, are you reminded of Rwanda? Yes, inevitably. I mean, um, I actually just returned to Rwanda last month um, in advance of the 20 years, and Concern actually has just put a team into Central African Republic last week. So um, there's close connections both in my head and certainly I think just in relation to what's happening there on the ground. Um, And there are are differences, but the reality is, you know, the word genocide or reports of genocide are now being used in relation to what is happening in Central Africa Republic, um, which is a country that is now in uh, in the midst of self-destruction. Now, even before this happened, the Central African Republic was one of the poorest and most unstable countries in the world. What kind of challenges has it faced? One of the problems, I I think, in relation to um, is on governance, you know, and we've had now um, um, a series, there's been a series of coups uh, since it claimed independence from the French. But um, the, the biggest challenge just in, in the last year is with the, um, the coup that happened with the anti-government militia, the Seleka, as they're known as. Um, and since then, since March 2013, uh, the country has slipped into um, a spiral of violence now that has uh, resulted in massive, massive displacement. But this is a country, I think, that largely... Um, is a very little strategic value and therefore has received uh, disproportionately less attention from the international community than it should have. Now, there are 6,000 African Union troops in the Central African Republic along with 2,000 French soldiers and there may uh, now be a new force of maybe 1,000 EU troops heading there. Is that enough, do you think, in terms of an international response to try to stem this violence? Uh, probably, no, uh, we would say it isn't enough because the reality is that, you know, this is a country the size of France. Um, and so when you've less than 10,000 troops uh, trying to control the scale of what is happening there, it's not. But there is a significant difference um, in the mandate that the UN has in Central Africa Republic in comparison to the mandate that existed uh, in Rwanda prior to the genocide. And the mandate that the, tr- the, the UN troops have here is much more robust. They actually have a mandate to use force to protect civilians. And that is a big change in comparison to 20 years ago. 
And then in terms of just how, the kind of effective action that can be taken, has have there been lessons? I mean, you were saying that obviously the mandate is more robust than it was in Rwanda. But what kind of lessons do you think the international community has learned from the experience of Rwanda? Well, I mean, prior to Rwanda, and it's been a, in, in prior to Rwanda. I mean, it was very evident that, um, despite the fact that there were clear signs, uh, I think we have to remember that it was only six months before that uh, that the 18 U.S. troops um, in Somalia uh, were murdered, were shot, and their bodies dragged through the streets of Mogadishu, and that was beamed across every television, every uh, media center across the world. And the appetite for international intervention uh, pretty much diminished as a result of that and was to cast, you know, influence kind of a lack of intervention policy um, for the next couple of years, um, which had a massive influence on the uh, lack of response in Rwanda. Since then, and the learning from Rwanda and the, the issue, the strong promise that the international community came out of never again, um, the UN did pass the responsibility to protect in 2005, which essentially said that if a government is not protecting, and in fact if it's um, creating massive damage or killing its own civilians, the international community has got a right to intervene. Now, exercising that is, is, is significantly more different difficult than saying it, but that is a significant change, and that is probably why we're seeing at least some intervention now in Central Africa Republic, uh, even if it isn't sufficient. You were saying that CONCERN has just started an operation in the Central African Republic. How difficult is it to operate in an environment like that? It's extremely difficult at present. Uh, I mean, the situation in Bangui, um, the capital city, we know that there are many thousands of people who are displaced in and around that. Um, and we have a team now on the ground. We're now focusing on trying to get out into some of the more remote areas uh, to provide uh, assistance. There's two major problems. The, uh, security and access, and I think it was only last last week somebody from the Red Cross was killed. So the badge of a humanitarian organization uh, isn't a guarantee of protection. The second big challenge is funding. Central Africa Republic, despite a focus by the UN, is very poorly funded and is not a cheap place to work. And those I mean, unfortunately, that's something that we should have control over. It shouldn't be a prevented, preventative, but that is something that we're, we, we struggle with as well. And what exactly is the work that you're doing there? What we're going to be focusing on largely is nutrition and water. I mean, this is basically about providing people with the basics. You know, this is ensuring that somebody has some uh, protection to sleep under at night time. This is ensuring that somebody has enough uh, food to eat, families that had to flood the violence. Um, and it is about establishing a presence. I mean, I think, you know, of having international uh, troops on the ground, but also having international aid agencies on the ground provides uh, a degree of witnessing and protection that is critically, critically important in a country that is uh, experiencing such huge trauma. Finally, if people listening to us now are concerned about what's happening in the Central African Republic, what can they do to help? 
Well, you know, I, I think despite the fact that we in Ireland were having our own challenges, um, even with the economy, the Irish public has always been hugely supportive. And I think they understand better than most nations um, the need for uh, providing assistance to people that are implied. So we certainly would welcome any support that we... Uh, and, and, and basically what we ask is what people can afford. Uh, and we can absolutely assure you, um, you know, because we're very open, very transparent, very accountable, uh, we can absolutely assure you whatever you give us will certainly be used in the right way. Dominic McSorley, thank you. And you can find out more about Concern at concern.net. Pretoria, the second week of Olympic athlete Oscar Pistorius's murder trial, has been marked by dramatic scenes, with Pistorius becoming physically sick as post-mortem evidence was introduced. He's accused of murdering his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp, a year ago, in a shooting he claims was unintentional. He says he thought he was shooting a burglar. The first double amputee to compete in the Olympics, Pistorius was a hero for many South Africans, but his trial is being viewed as an important test for his country's justice system. To hear more about it, I'm joined by our Southern Africa correspondent, Bill Corcoran, who's been following the trial. Bill, what was the evidence that caused Oscar Pistorius to break down this week? Uh, Good afternoon. Yes, well, we're in on the seventh day of the trial, and things got um, very emotional today. Um, The pathologist uh, who carried out the post-mortem on Reva Steenkamp, um, he gave some uh, very detailed evidence. Professor Gert uh, Simon um, told how that Oscar had used a particularly brutal type of bullet that when it entered the body exploded on impact, and he went through the three different um, problems in terms of what happened when the bullets entered Reva's body, when they entered her elbow, her head, and then also in her thigh. It was very graphic, and uh, Oscar Pistorius uh, was overcome with emotion when he was hearing this evidence, and it had to be passed a bucket, and he was retching loudly throughout the evidence. The defence over the last few days has been casting some doubt on the accounts of the events of the murder night by some of Pistorius's neighbours. Did the defence lawyers successfully find inconsistencies in those neighbours' accounts? Um, well, there was two separate um, lots of evidence. There was a husband and wife who lived in a neighbouring estate who gave evidence, um, and then there was also a neighbour who lived three houses away who also gave evidence. Now, Mr. Pistorius, in his um, opening statement to the court, had said that it was wrong to say that there had been arguments in his house that night he shot Reva Steenkamp. There had been no arguments that they were in a loving relationship whereas these two sets of uh, witnesses had said that they had heard loud arguments and uh, screaming throughout uh, the evening, and exactly what had woken them up at 2 to 3 a.m. in the morning. The initial um, uh, witnesses uh, from the adjoining estate, the female uh, witness, was very strong in her evidence. Um, the defence lawyer, Barry Rue, who was renowned for picking minute details apart in terms of the witness statements, um, ha- was very tough on her, but she never backed down. Her husband, however, <clears throat> was less strong in his evidence, and um, he was forced to, um, the case was forced to adjourn for a little while, and he had to go and re- revert to notes that he had made. Um, there were small inconsistencies. The uh, uh, Barry Rue had said uh, accused them of um, uh, the two, the husband and wife uh, witnesses of 
colluding on their statements. And he did, was able to point in some areas where their statements were extremely similar. Um, they, they repeatedly denied that this was the case, but it's um, hard to deny that there were some various consistencies in, in those two statements. In relation to the other uh, witness, she didn't give too much evidence. Effectively, she just said that she had, was woken at night and heard arguments, um, but didn't say that she'd heard gunshot wounds, whereas uh, the, other two or the other two witnesses had said that they had heard uh, gunshots as well as screaming. And um, the, uh, Barry Roo was able to confront them in relation to how they were able to hear gunshots uh, in, in, a, in a house and screaming from behind a closed bathroom door where uh, uh, Reeves Steenkamp was when she was shot dead. So um, he did his best to cast doubt on, on, on the evidence put forward, and he has said that he is going to bring forth his own witness evidence that will counter some of the evidence that they have uh, given to date. But as yet, that's a matter of weeks away because we're still at the def situation where the defence is bringing, or sorry, the prosecution is bringing forward its witnesses. The defence have yet to bring forward their witnesses. And the prosecution has also been uh, telling us uh, rather a lot about Pistorius's obsession with guns. Has that been damaging to him? Oh yes, that's, uh, that would be very damaging to him. Um, there's been a number of incidents, um, one relating to um, a restaurant uh, in, in Johannesburg when Mr. Pistorius was with a group of friends. It is uh, in a place called Melrose Arch, which is a very um, well-to-do area, and it was a very nice restaurant that they were at. And um, what had apparently happened, or what the, um, a, a witness had said, who was at the table, said a friend of Pistorius's had a gun, um, at the restaurant, Pistorius asked him, could he see the gun? As the, the, the weapon was being handed over to Pistorius, it somehow got caught and um, a, a bullet was fired into the, into the floor of the restaurant. Uh, now, what was most damaging for Pistorius is that it's, the, the witness had um, said that Pistorius asked him to lie for Pistorius. Uh, uh, Pistorius said he didn't want to uh, take the blame because of the undue media tension he was under. Now, this would really cast doubts on the type of character that this fellow is in terms of him willing to, to, to take responsibility for his actions. Um, there's also a second incident where he was driving down the street um, or down the road with his um, former girlfriend, a girl called Samantha Taylor, and had been stopped by police um, officers, I think they were speeding, um, and uh, after it was been a sort of a, an altercation between the officers and Mr. Pistorius, and words were exchanged. And as they were leaving uh, and driving away from this, the scene, Pistorius apparently took his gun out of his uh, pocket and started firing through the sunroof. So all this points to a person who is. Um, not necessarily, uh, you know, he, he has, a, he has a, a serious love of guns and is, is happy to, to unload a weapon in, in, in a country in, into the air when there could be, people could be, suffer injuries from it. So it does all point to a, a man who doesn't 
look out for others. One of the things that we've been hearing about this trial is that, in a sense, it's not just a trial of Oscar Pistorius, but a trial of the South African justice system itself. Why is that? The South African justice system um, is known for not being able to prosecute uh, effectively a number of high-level cases. It's, it's understood that only about 10% of people who get brought forward for serious crimes like murder actually go to jail. So, um, And it's also, be, it's also looked upon as a system that favours those the wealthy and those who have money and it, on those two fronts that's where the the, the system is, is being held up to scrutiny we're into week two of this trial so far how many weeks are we expecting it to last well it's meant to last between three and six weeks but we have on the list there's 107 witnesses to give evidence both um, and then they will have to be cross-examined by both the defense and the prosecution um, I think at this stage we've gone through maybe 10 witnesses. Um, so the likelihood of the, the case being finished within that within three-week period would appear slim. Can it be done in six weeks? I would imagine things would have to speed up um, uh, significantly if that were to be the case. Bill Corcoran in South Africa, thank you. The Eurosceptic United Kingdom Independence Party are threatening to push David Cameron's Conservatives into third place at this year's European elections. But despite their success, party leader Nigel Farage has had some difficulty persuading other party leaders to debate with him. Until now, that is. Liberal Democrat leader and Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg has agreed to do not one but two debates with Farage in the run-up to the European elections in May. The pro-Europe Lib Dems are not competing for votes with UKIP, so what is Clegg up to? I'm joined by our London editor Mark Hennessy, fresh from the Lib Dem Spring Conference in York. Mark, what are the Lib Dems up to? Well, every politician loves to be able to define themselves against an enemy. And by doing what he's doing in terms of having two debates, that is clearly what Clegg has done. He's picked the most Eurosceptic uh, quarter, and he will be able to place himself up against uh, Farage and say that he is the, the voice of the pro-EU camp uh, in Britain. Now, obviously, that is not a message that is particularly attractive for many people in Britain because there is such a Eurosceptic feeling abroad. But nevertheless, he believes there is a constituency and one that is sufficiently large for his purposes that if he were to get it, it would both ensure that he could hold on to all or most of his European Parliament seats uh, in the May election, but most importantly, it would create a base from which to go forward for the May 15 elections. Do we know actually how much support there is for a pro-European position in Britain? No, because the question doesn't tend to get asked very often. And in fact, the question tends to be more about uh, how Eurosceptic uh, political opinion is. The business community are becoming increasingly uh, irritated and worried about the nature of the debate here because what you see happening, with, particularly with David Cameron, it's like somebody walking down a corridor, closing one door after another and eventually getting to the point where the only door in front of them will be the one marked exit and it, without having ever made a conscious decision necessarily that that's the, the door that he wishes to take. Now, Clegg believes that he will be able to uh, create his own space on the political landscape simply because of the fact that he will be, it, it is such a fresh message. The Tories are split on Europe. Uh, Labour are broadly in favour of it, but they don't want to talk about it because they don't see it as a political advantage. And UKIP on the other side are obviously uh, demanding uh, the British exit. So he does, Clegg does create a position for himself uh, where he will be able to uh, attract a degree of support if, and this is the big if, 
whether the British public are prepared to actually engage in a conversation with him in terms of their attitudes to Europe. Because what many Liberal Democrats canvassers will tell you is the one thing that keeps coming up again and again when they're on the doors is the Liberal Democrats' position to reverse their opposition to uh, tuition fees. Uh, when they were in opposition, they wanted to get rid of them. And when in power with, with the Tories, not only did they not get rid of them, but they actually tripled them. And that has proven to be one of those rare uh, actions in politics that seems to forever define uh, a political party. And it's not at all clear whether uh, Clegg will ever be able to get off that hook. Uh, and that indeed is a, 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 it has been a huge issue for them. And in the early phase, really, once that happened, Nick Clegg was widely seen as a massive liability for his party. It looked as if the Lib Dems were doomed in uh, the next general election. Has anything changed? Well, what has changed is perhaps a certain degree of self-confidence. Um, the Liberal Democrats are, are a party that have oftentimes been within the margin of error in opinion polls. I mean, they, they, on occasions they've achieved zero and one percent in British opinion polls. So they're used to being uh, at, under the cosh. And they have always tended to display a, quite an extraordinary level of resilience. Now, the conference in York at the weekend was easily the best attended spring conference the Liberal Democrats have had since they went into power. It's an indication that perhaps some people have come back to them uh, over the last period. Now, whether it's enough is the open question. They have 57 seats. They're very, very strong on the ground. They have very strong constituency operations. They're, they're like Fianna Fáil politicians in many ways. They're very good at clientelistic uh, uh, politics. And they tend to get a very large personal vote, uh, one that is frequently divorced from the fortunes of the party at large and indeed the fortunes of the leader. And many of their people are going to need that gap and that distance if they're going to come through in 15, given the, the wider unpopularity uh, that, that Clegg attracts. Now, uh, whether they can do that is, uh, as I say, is an open question. The, most people around uh, Westminster will tell you that they believe the Liberal Democrats will come back with over 40 seats in 15. If they do that, it'll be a serious loss. But nevertheless, depending on the mathematics, it could still leave them in a position where they could be part of the next government, regardless of whether it is Tory-led or Labour-led. The Lib Dems, of course, have been traditionally the third force in British politics. But in Scotland and Wales, they've been living with four-party politics for many years, with the Nationalists competing with the other three parties. But now that's the reality everywhere. How are the established parties dealing with the reality of four-party politics throughout the country? Not particularly well. Um, it is four-party politics at the, the devolved level, but Westminster still thinks in terms of uh, two teams on the pitch and no more. We've seen very senior Conservatives and Labour people talk about how uh, their respective parties should run uh, minority governments after May 15 if uh, no single party gets an overall majority. Now, Clegg was very quick to be uh, derisive about that, and he, you know, t uh, he mocked it uh, quite uh, uh, harshly, making the point that, you know, do these people listen to the, wor to the voice of the British people, and if a party doesn't get a majority, then it doesn't get uh, it doesn't get rule. But nevertheless, it, it, those kind of comments are indicative of an attitude. Uh, the, the Conservatives, uh, senior people around uh, David Cameron himself, William Hague and others have worked coalition reasonably well. It's actually a, a, a more happy camp inside Number 10 in the Cabinet Office and around Whitehall um, amongst many of the ministers 
ministers than you might think. There are certainly difficulties between Tories and people like Vince Cable and others, but nevertheless, around the core, around Clegg and Cameron, it actually works. Uh, Labour are traditionally the most tribalistic uh, party in British politics. Uh, many of them would hate uh, Liberal Democrats with a, with a vengeance, and I use the word hate advisedly, um, and it, it is accurate. Uh, they have di- displayed very little uh, ambition to uh, share power. We saw a couple of weeks ago where everybody was uh, ruling out any possibility of coalition and everybody got rather excited here. We know from our own experience in, in Ireland that these kind of comments 18 months out from an election mean nothing. Uh, at the end of the day, everything will be decided by the numbers. But despite it being decided by the numbers, when you look at the mental mindset that many of the senior figures in both parties will be coming to such negotiations if they are necessary, it isn't necessarily something that um, the political system here has become any more attuned to than they were four and a half years ago. The fourth force in English politics, UKIP, is the subject of a new book called Revolt on the Right by academics Robert Ford and Matthew Goodwin, and that casts some new light on the complexion of the party's supporters. What does it tell us? Well, what it says, the normal image of UKIP are people who go around in blue blazers and they're members of, ex-members of the Royal Air Force and everybody talks about Bomber Command and they're seen as being Daily Mail readers, very anti-immigration and very conservative. The reality, says uh, the the authors of this new book, is that the uh, UKIP sport is very labour-based and that it's very white working class. It's people who've been disenfranchised by the changes to manufacturing and uh, uh, traditional industries over the last 30 years and they're angry and they feel disconnected from society and they're looking for a place to go. Now we've seen one or two signs of that in council elections in East London. There was a particularly fascinating one in Havering um, last year where one of the the UKIP candidates uh, won and did extraordinarily well. However, uh, in Withenshaw the by-election that was uh, called after uh, Paul Goggins's death, the former Labour Northern Ireland minister, um, th- there had been fears within Labour that there would have been a UK tide uh, in that constituency. And that was one of the reasons why they called the by-election within weeks of his death. And yet, after 10 days, it was quite clear to Labour that the, the UKIP tide coming from the working-class districts of that constituency just simply wasn't going to materialise. So the, the authors are right that that kind of white, disenfranchised working class is where uh, UKIP um, uh, need to go, but they have to do an awful lot more targeting and uh, constituency work than they're doing at the moment. Quite often, uh, UKIP is very much a one-man brand in the form of Farage. There's no real encouragement given to other figures in the party to come forward to create um, uh, kind of competing centres within the party. It's very much a one-man organisation. Now, th- they are short of really high-quality people to put up around, uh, alongside him, it has to be said. But if you look at the Eastleigh by-election in Hampshire last year, where the party candidate, Diane James, did exceptionally well, came second uh, to the Liberal Democrats. Uh, very articulate. She's a woman. She's uh, very good on TV, and we've barely seen her on uh, TV since then. So clearly within UKIP, there's no, de- no desire to put those people forward. Forward, even when they have them. So we, uh, we, 
whether they can put in place uh, operations at uh, in targeted seats that can deliver results, that is going to be the key question in 2015. Under the first-past-the-post rules, they can get 15 and 20 percent until the cows come home. It's never going to put them in the House of Commons unless they can pick a half a dozen seats where they can get 35 to 40 percent of the vote. They're always going to be the nearly men of British politics. But in some ways, for many of the people in UKIP, their work is already done because they have changed the face of British politics to an extent in the way in which they have impacted on the debate within the Conservative Party about the European Union. The, the Conservatives have, under Cameron, he has responded again and again and again, drifting ever more towards the exit uh, in the face of pressure coming from his Eurosceptic backbenchers. And finally, Mark, Nigel Farage is, as you said, the, the overwhelmingly dominant figure in UKIP, and he's a very popular figure, uh, a figure who's got the common touch. Is his reputation likely to be enhanced by his encounter with Nick Clegg? Well, it's a major uh, plus for him. I mean, the LBC radio debate in London is one thing, but the real prize is the BBC Two TV debate a week later. Um, Farage has never had that kind of opportunity of live TV lasting for an hour. It's a debate that all of the major TV channels wanted to host. He's very good on it. He's, he's, a, he's a very populist performer. However, as he showed at a press conference in, your, in, uh, in Turkey uh, 10 days ago, he has a, a, a very angry side that when pressed, he can sound very authoritarian and unpleasant and the question is going to be whether Clegg can rise him uh, in a programme because I think it's quite clear that Clegg is going to go in and play some uh, fairly tough ground hurling if he has to. Mark Hennessy in London, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Robert Sullivan and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.